Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I'm going to give you an easier ride. Recent episodes have been pretty heavy. We've had challenging gender politics, genital mutilation, and a whole raft of grim apocalypses. And that's just the fiction. I mean, the less said about the real world, the better. Let's get back to basics a little bit. Our guest is Simone St. James, the best-selling author of supernatural suspense bestsellers, including 2020's smash hit The Sundown Motel. Well, she's back with another blending of genres. Her new novel is called The Book of Cold Cases, and it graphs true crime and the supernatural together into a lovely big pot-boiling stew. It feels almost light-hearted in comparison with what's going on in the news right now. Of course, we do still talk about serial killers, about malignant houses and misogyny. I've not gone too soft. And I will say the ghosts in this one are particularly creepy. So, come with me to the West Coast in 1977 or 2017. Take your pick. The sun is shining, but there's blood on the breeze. Let's talk scared. Hello, Simone. A big welcome to Talking Scared. Hi, nice to be here. How are things wherever you are in the world? Uh, I am just outside Toronto, Canada. Uh, It's pretty good. Sunny, a bit cold, but, uh, you know, spring's coming. It'll come. Yeah. I mean, how are you dealing with the resumption of the Cold War that no one thought we'd have this week? Yeah, I know. That's, you know, yeah, that was a nice twist. A nice twist (laughs) to 2022. Yeah, it's like 2020, the the, the threequel. I I, um, every time I record one of these at the moment, because I'm recording quite a lot, I I always wonder if it will be heard or whether in some future millennia, aliens will kind of find my laptop in the nuclear ruins and and wonder why we spent so much time talking about books. Yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, my publisher has been talking to me about, oh, the next book, you know, it's going to come out in like whatever year. And I'm like, are we going to be around in that year? I don't know. Yeah. I guess I'll just write books in the hopes that everyone's still around in a few years. <laughs> That's all you can do. That that really is like, you know, fighting against the dying of the light in it. Just keep writing books in the vain hope you'll have readers. Yeah. Let, yes. look, we'll, be, we'll be vaporized or reading. They're the options. Uh, fingers crossed it's the latter. <laughs> right. Anyway, much more positively, you have a new book out today. And yes. it's called The Book of Cold Cases. And thankfully, it's about fear and violent on a slightly smaller, more localised, less geopolitical stage. (laughs) But it is scary. Before we go any further, can you, I suppose, set the scene and the story a little for my listeners? Sure, yeah. it's um, This book is my mix of true crime, suspense, thriller with paranormal, and there's also a romantic subplot in it. So it's a lot of stuff that I love to read, put together into one book. Um, I usually, as I, I usually write my books because it's the book I'm looking to read and I can't find. So I have to write it myself. So I like all of those things and I like them all in one book and I can't find it. So I have to write it. So the setup is that it's about, um, it's about an infamous serial murder case um, from the 1970s, which is a completely made up case. It's not a real case. Um, and a woman was accused of being the killer. She went to trial and she was acquitted. And in the present day, a true, true crime blogger gets the chance to interview this woman. And, you know, she says, I'm going to tell you what really happened back in the seventies when these murders were happening. And so they sit down for some interviews and the truth comes out and it's a bit of a wild ride. It is that, yeah. You managed to get through that synopsis without mentioning ghosts once. Um, <laughs> there are but, ghosts in the book. I might as well yeah. be upfront about that. <laughs> yeah, there are ghosts, and and we'll get to them because you know I like a good haunted house story, but but the haunted house in this one, yeah, it mm-hmm. it, it really freaked me out. But right, all in due time because as you said, there's a lot in this book, and there's mystery to deal with. There are ghosts to deal with. There's a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm. Let's start off with the first thing that came to mind when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. I say this with delight, having come off the back of a series of books that have been great in their own right, but books that haven't been, shall we say, overly focused on plot and structure. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it, it seems to me that the book of cold cases is very much a plot driven book. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I know there's a lot of weird sort of misplaced snobbery around plots these days. So let's start there. How do you feel about me even saying that, that it's a plot-driven book? Are you are you a lover of plot? Is that something you think is damning with faint praise? I mean, how do you, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, I mean, I consider myself a genre writer and genre really does, I mean, it, it really doesn't have any snobbery about plot. But um, this, the, th- this one was kind of organic because I come up with, I come up, the first thing I come up with is questions, you know, for myself. It's like, I come up with this setup. She's interviewing someone who's acquitted of this woman who's acquitted of murder. Well, did she or didn't she do it? That's, that's what I ask myself at first. So then I, as I'm making my way through that, as I'm planning the book out, I come up with some of the answers to some of the mysteries. For this one, it was a bit, it was a bit ambitious what I was trying to do with the story and I wanted to make sure it worked. I wanted to make sure it was believable. I wanted to make sure the characters were doing believable things. So, I mean, I just kind of ended up having to having to do a lot of plot <laughs> to get where I was going. Um, this is, you know, less of a sort of atmospheric, sort of dreamy type story and more about real questions, like questions of like what really happened and who did what. And, and there's a lot of that fun stuff and investigate, investigating and digging up secrets and you know, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it just sort of organically came from what I was trying to do with this particular story. Um, it just happened to have a lot of plot actually. <laughs> okay. I mean, I like that. Like, like I say, I seem to read a lot of books the minute that just when they willfully not kind of injecting a propulsive plot into the story or whether right. it's just a style thing or whether it's an organic, I, I don't know. Um, and right. I love variety, but I do miss kind of plotted scary stories because there's a satisfaction to them. There's a satisfaction to feeling like you're in the hands of someone who wants to put you on rails and take you on a ride. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Interpretation is great, but I like sometimes to be taken by the hand and yeah, taken on a good time. Right. And when you're writing a scary story or a paranormal story, there's a bit of a line to walk because a little bit of what's scary about the paranormal is that it's kind of dreamlike or nightmare-like. You know, you want the reader to have a little bit of that feeling like, I don't really know where I am or what's next, you know, or what what's going to happen, like where this thing is going to appear next or why or what it's going to do or what it wants or any of these things. And so you kind of want a slightly nightmarish quality to it. But I just, you know, I, I also just, because I have this mystery and suspense element, I just really you know, I, as you say, propulsively just have to keep, I just keep moving it, moving everyone through the action and then trying to balance in some of those nightmarish kind of visuals. Yeah. And like I said before, we'll get to the house, <laughs> uh, which is full <laughs> of nightmares. Sticking with the structure for a minute, you've gone for this sort of two timeline structure. So yep. to reiterate for the listener's benefit, you've got Beth, who is this suspected murderer, murderess, Right. You know, um, yeah, that's back in the 70s. And then you've got Shay, who is this true crime blogger in 2017. And mm-hmm. and the two the two time periods are very much in dialogue with each other. And I've been looking right. back over your previous um, your previous work. And it, it's a structure and an approach you've taken in some of your more recent novels, too, like The Broken Girls and The Sundown Motel have right. that that thing. What is it about that setup that appeals to you? Um, well, you're right. My first few books that I wrote were a single timeline that just sort of very sequential. Uh, and then when I wrote the broken girls, that story really called for it. I like the idea of someone in the present investigating something that's long buried in the past. And so if you want to write that kind of a story, if you're not going to do two timelines, your other option is to have your present day character going around interviewing everybody and having people having long scenes of people sitting and telling them things. And that's just not very interesting. And so if you want, if you want to really suck the reader in, you need to put them in that scene, no matter when that scene is. So I think it just comes to, for, for me, it just comes from the fact that it's always more interesting as a reader to be inside the scene than to be listening to someone tell, tell the scene. Um, oh, this is what happened when I was 20 years old. Let me tell you, blah, blah, blah. You know, so that's that doesn't suck me in as much as just going right there. So uh, The Broken Girls was very much a two-timeline uh, story. And 
I just, it just had to be told that way. I had never done a two timeline story before that book. And it was, it was a huge learning curve. It was incredibly difficult to do. It takes a ton more organization, a ton more plotting. Um, I end up with, with maps, I mean, like maps of the story, my handwritten scribbles of like, this scene leads to this scene, which goes back to this scene, which goes over here. You're trying to map all that out in your head. Um, so it becomes really complex. Um, so it kind of is what the story, it depends on what the story calls for. As I say, like this one, if you're going to talk about a serial killer or potentially a serial killer in the 1970s, as a reader, take me to the 1970s and show me what happened. Like, that's all I want. Suck me right into there and like, just, sh just send me along in those scenes. I want to see it. So that's just the way I do it. That said, I am working on my next book and my next book will have a single timeline. So it's really what the story calls for, I think. Okay, that that does make sense. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it's kind of replacing a very passive storytelling form with a more active. Yeah, when you're it? when you're writing about someone who's investing, I don't write about like cops specifically. So, like, if you want to a cop procedural, that's oh, like that type of book is always interesting to read. But if you're writing like I am about someone who's a bit of an amateur, like a blogger or whatever, and in the Broken Girl, she's a journalist who's investigating something, you're going to be writing a lot of scenes of them, Googling things, reading things and asking people questions. And it's, it's just not the most compelling. And you can, you can up your excitement quotient by just putting the reader right in the middle of that scene mm -hmm. in the past. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned complex plotting and systems and maps, because when I was reading this book, I kept thinking that this, it, it, it felt it had an affinity with something else that I'd read and I couldn't think what it was. And it dawned on me that that two timeline structure is very similar to what Jennifer McMahon uses yes. um, with her supernatural suspense stories. Uh, and when yes. I spoke to her, she talked about this like ridiculous, you know, this overly complex board of like string and maps and post-it notes and things. And I, mm -hmm. and when I, when I tried, when I started this podcast, it was, um, I was trying to write my first novel and I haven't mentioned it in about a year because I got derailed because mm -hmm. I was trying the two timeline thing and just mm -hmm. the, the plotting required was beyond me as my first attempt. Um, right. And one of the things I noticed in this book actually is how often subsequent chapters kind of reiterate revelations across the timeline. So you'll have a bombshell in, in the seventies chapter that is directly picked up on in the very next chapter, but, but taking place 40 years later. And right. it felt like a book that's been really tightly woven together. Uh, yes. And um, there is one uh, key to that, and that is revisions. <laughs> <laughs> it was not, it was a much worse book in the first draft. I will tell you that right now, that to get that exactly right requires revising it a lot. Um, and, cutting things that don't work and rewriting things that don't work and restructuring things that don't work and um you know making yeah just anything anything if you're writing a scene and it doesn't mirror that previous scene you just have to delete it you have to cut it you got to start over and it's not it's it's uh it's hard to do so my first draft looked nothing like what you what the book is now <laughs> it was it was a giant dog's breakfast mess and I went through it. I, I rewrote it um, at least once before I turned it into my editor. And then my editor, and I knew she would do this. My editor went through it with a, with a, with a knife and <laughs> showed me all the parts that still didn't work. And I did it again. So it was definitely uh, not just sort of flowing from my fingertips in that final <laughs> form. That's definitely not how it works. <laughs> well, you've hidden the scenes very well because it feels very organic and fluid. Uh, you can't see the scars. Oh, that's the idea. So I'm glad it worked. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like you're a professional writer. It's almost like you know what you're doing, you know. <laughs> well, with that first draft, you never feel like a professional writer who knows what you're doing. <laughs> you're writing it and you're like, I know this is terrible. Everything is terrible. Why Why is anyone? Why does anyone want me to write a book? This is crazy. And um, then you have to wade through revising it and revising it. And, and then by the end of really after you revised it enough times, you're just kind of like, I actually have no idea whether this is any good or not, but my editor says it's acceptable. So I'm just going to have to trust her because she's, I am so like, I've read it so many times that it's like, 
It's just sentences on a page at this point. Yeah, I can imagine. Were there always ghosts in this book? Yes. Because I was thinking about it. I was thinking you could tell this story, kind of, you know, without the ghosts. Yes. It would still function as a mystery story. But there was always a supernatural element. Um, why is that? Is that because you just like ghosts or do you feel like you have to inject them into your stories now? What, where do the ghosts come from? Well, um, I, I've always, all of my books have been ghost stories. Um, my publisher really likes that I write them and I find that they, even in a story like this, you're right. Like you could pull the ghosts out and just basically have a crime thriller, but I kind of, I like adding that extra layer um, the ghost is like a lot of what I write about the themes I return to is uh, grief and fear, a fear of dying, a fear of what comes next, um, regret about what you've done maybe or not in your life and trauma and whether you move on from it or whether you refuse to move on from it. And those are all themes that I return to and ghosts just fit into those themes. It's like a visual representation of like, this is something that this person refuses to let go of. This is some, this is some grief that refuses to go away. This is some, um, some type of horrible trauma that refuses to go away and it will only go away if you face it. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a great way for me to just visually just add another layer to it where you just absolutely must face this thing. This is what has to happen. And it's, it, and if you don't, it's going to just ruin your life. You're, you're never going to have a good life. So I, I really enjoy the imagery of it. And I just enjoy writing the scary scenes. The scary scenes are, are a fun little, a little window where I don't have to the worry about plot during that scene. I just get to come up with really scary images and just run with them and just write everything that comes into my head. So um, that's also a fun little spot where I'm not overly plotting my way through it, <laughs> but I just find it, it adds for me, it adds an extra layer to what's going on with the characters and the, how they're growing and changing and where they're at and where they're going. Well, the scenes of haunting in the book of cold cases are, are quite fleeting, I suppose. Um, but mm -hmm. boy, they really make an impact. So you've got mm -hmm. Beth the, in the in the present day, this this aging um, suspect. I'm treading carefully on what I say. She's called Beth Greer, and she lives in a house known as the Greer Mansion. And she's she's been mm -hmm. living there for decades, alone with with whatever may be haunting her. And right. it's genuinely creepy. Like there's a scene where she's because the, the, the matter of factness of her existence and the, the fact that she knows these things are around her, and she every mm. night she lives she lives alone with with things roaming the halls and banging on her bedroom door. It, it's mm. it's it generally I find it really quite quite effective, and and the house mm. has remained untouched for decades. She's still living amongst her parents' things, and all her mother's clothes are still in the wardrobes, and her own childhood bedroom is untouched and. Why is that, do you think, such a creepy concept? Well, you know, it's it, it, we've all either experienced grief or, or we worry about our loved ones and what are we going to do if and when they're gone. And it's something we all think about. And it's just sort of taps into that, you know, um, just that feeling that we all have, like either you've lost someone or you worry about losing someone in your life or like is you know is this person going to go before me what will i do and i think all that imagery just taps into that and she's lost people and you know psychologically she hasn't let go of it and in her physical world she hasn't let go of it and she hasn't let go of anything and so she comes across when she's not you know when she's just herself talking to shay or whatever she comes across as this confident woman who is whip smart and maybe a little bit scary because Shay doesn't know if this is a murderer, whether she's a sociopath or a psychopath. And she's, so she's a bit quite intimidating, but when you go to her home, you see that she also has like just a, a, some real tragic, some real tragic flaws happening in her life and in her world. Mm. That thing of having your mother's clothing hung up like decades after her death, it's a real marker of kind of perverse, 
grief to me. You know, I always yes. I always think of things like Ed Gein, you know, who had his his mother's room sealed off, and in in yes. in more awful terms, the you know, I don't think you've heard of Jimmy Savile, the Britain's it was a yes. yeah like celebrity and erstwhile pedophile. Well, he had his mother's clothes kind of sealed off and never to be touched mm. again. And it's that sense of mm. kind of grief gone wrong, almost grief gone sour. That as you say, you can't move on. Right. Yeah. It, yeah, and, and you know, and and you're just basically in your mind thinking, well, this person is in a way still here. You know, if I just have these clothes here, this person is still mm. here. And in Beth's case, I'm again no spoilers, but it has to do with how her parents died and she, how you know she ha- feels responsibility for it, and whether that's right or wrong, that's how she feels. So um, she hasn't she hasn't worked her way through that. And then there's the actual mansion itself, which I mean I could be wrong about this, but I I got strong Hill House vibes with this this sense that the house itself was some kind of sentient antagonist. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect to it. I mean, I have read The Haunting of Hill House and I've watched the Netflix series. I'm a big fan of the Netflix series as well. So um, when you've written a number of ghost stories, you're always, you're always trying to find a different aspect of it. You know, like it can't just, you know, you, it's like, oh, there's a ghost here and they, it's because this happened and they were haunting the house because of this and this is what they want and, and you know so you're you're always trying to sort of figure out different ways like does the ghost leave the house with this person does this ghost follow them around are they trapped in the house or, or like the house itself is almost feeding the ghost the house and the ghost are kind of feeding off each other so you get to play around with different ways that the ghost manifests and how it works and kind of what the rules are, what the world building is like when it comes to the ghost. Well, it's interesting you say that you've, you know, you keep changing it up and you've got to keep changing it up because looking back over your published work, as you say, it's been, you know, a sequence of, of very different ghost stories. Um, mm-hmm. But you've moved from a kind of, from what I could see, Edwardian kind of historical fiction mm-hmm. set in Britain that's, that mm-hmm. is romantically inflected i suppose recently yes. you've moved to a much more contemporary north american setting and style what yes. what prompted that change well um when i wrote my first published novel which is the haunting of maddie claire and yes it's set in 1920s england the and I, I, I when i wrote that book i hadn't i did not have an agent i did not have a publisher i was a complete unknown who who'd been trying to write books and querying agents for years and just getting rejections for years. So I did not have an agent. I had nothing. And I wrote, I came up with this story. I, what I, I what I saw was an article or something. And it, ta- and it briefly mentioned that in the England between the world wars, um, a lot of the farming didn't get done. And a lot of the fields went fallow because so many of the men were dead. And that just sort of, that just sort of twigged something in my mind. And I thought, well, that just sounds haunted. Like you have this haunted countryside where all the men are all dead. I mean, that's, that's scary as heck. So I thought, what if you said a ghost story in this haunted, this countryside where, you know, the men are gone. And so I just sort of built that story. And again, I, I, that was, that was just me telling a story to myself that I thought was interesting, (laughs) you know? So I wrote that and I thought, well, this is interesting. I like it. I don't know if anyone will ever read this. And, um, I sent it out my my query list and and that book got me an agent and then it got me a book deal. And so, you know, it just sort of it just sort of was it started out as just something I was interested in and I was interested in that time period as I say because because of the aftermath of the First World War and the reader knows the Second World War is going to come. So it, it's and and the 1920s you know, everyone thinks about it, the cliche of it, you know, it, it was so flashy and it was all parties and it was everybody drinking and, you know, and flappers and everybody having fun. But you kind of realize when you look into it that everyone was partying because everyone they knew was dead. I mean, it was like a really grim time and they everyone everyone was partying because they'd just come out of this horrible, this entire generation had come out of this horrible trauma. And there were about to go into another one so it's it's dark a lot darker than it, than it appears and so when so i just sort of delved into that as i say mirrored some of my supernatural ideas i delved into that for a few books and then 
you know, and then I just, I was like, I've, I've kind of explored this to as much as I want. And I, you know, I'd never planned to just write one time period for my whole career. I never thought I would have a career. So once I got to a couple books in and I was like, I think I have a career. <laughs> I guess, I guess people still want me to write these books. I, I, I'm amazed every time, but okay. And so I just thought I would change it up. And, um, I wanted, I, I switched over to America and with the broken girls and, I moved the past timeline into the fifties for that book. So I, I got to play around with later in the 20th century. Um, and it's just more creative exploring that I was doing. That's really the only reason is because I was exploring different time periods and different, different places um, just to, to change it up really. And what about geographies? Is that the same? Is it just exploration? Because you're from Toronto yet you yes. set books in the UK and the, the three most re- recent ones have been set in Vermont, New, New York State, and now Oregon with the book of cold cases. It, it's quite rare that people set their fiction so far afield from their own home state and hometown. What, how do you pick the location for your stories? Um, well, it, Vermont I picked for the Broken Girls because one of my... Um, favorite books of all time is uh the secret history by donna tart so it was just uh, some a lot of times in my books i'm just sort of amusing myself so that was a bit of a tribute to that book it my, my book is nothing like that book whatsoever there's no resemblance at all but i was just sort of paying tribute to that book just by using that setting um and uh sundown motel is set in upstate new york i've I, I am about a 90-minute drive from upstate New York, and I've been there many times. Uh, my my writer friends and I, a lot of times, will do a writer's retreat, and we'll just book a little Airbnb in upstate New York. So I've been there a number of times, and um, so that was a kind of familiar territory for me. And um, and in, for the Book of Cold Cases, Oregon, I, I just... I really wanted the atmosphere somewhere really rainy, frankly. <laughs> okay. I just wanted a nice gloomy rainy place. I could actually set it in the UK and I don't think about it, but um, yeah, I just, you know, so it's it kind of whatever serves the story for that. I was like, I just really want a really atmospheric rainy setting. But why not Canada? So that's why, why America? Um, well, uh, the, the reality is that if you set a book, uh, most of the time, I mean, I guess Stephen King could pull it off, but most of the time, if you set a book in Canada, it gets really siloed as Canadian fiction. Okay. And and nobody outside of Canada finds that very interesting. And it's not it's not right. I mean, it's not it doesn't make any sense. But that's sort of the reality is that it gets sort of siloed as oh, this is it's somehow about Canada, and like you set a you set a book anywhere else. I'm not writing. If you, if you set a book in the UK, you're not specifically saying this book is about the UK. Mm. I mean, not it's not what it's about. It's just the setting. But there's a weird sort of there's a weird sort of silo there. If you set something in Canada, it becomes it becomes the publisher slots it as Canadian fiction, and the bookstore slot it as Canadian fiction, and the readers go, I don't not very interested in specifically in Canadian fiction. So there's it, it adds a, it's almost like a genre. So I just wanted to stay out of that genre and use one that's more used use settings that are more widely used and that people are more used to so that it, the setting doesn't come with its own kind of baggage. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it's a shame because I, I'm a man who's in love with Canada. I spent a lot of time in Canada yeah. and um, I, I love reading about it. So, but I do get what you're saying. Yeah. Cause yeah, we have a lot of great places here, a lot of really cool history and a lot of really cool spots. And um, there is a lot of great Canadian fiction, but it's something that every Canadian genre writer, like the literary fiction writers can write about Canada and they win a bunch of awards and that's great. But the genre fiction writers uh, hit a wall if they try and set a book in Canada. It becomes the Canadian book. Yeah, I'm thinking about how often things get referred to as Canadian Gothic, even though that's a really... I spoke to Gemma Fowles about this, about what a really unwieldy, useless term that is because... How can you talk about, you know, Vancouver Gothic and Ontario or Newfoundland Gothic as the same thing? They're just not. And you look at the landmass of Canada compared to the landmass of the United States, yet we subdivide the United States into their own genres, award them their own genres, you know, yet Canada just just gets that one umbrella term. It's, yeah, it's it's a fairly useless (laughs) designation, I suppose. Right. In terms of mystery fiction, 
the mystery side of this. It feels like you're intentionally playing with and, and updating some of the tropes of the genre. So you've got a blogger yes. as opposed to an old school detective. Um, right. But there are elements that do feel very satisfyingly traditional. You know, you've got small town corruption, family intrigue, very sultry women. Is it a homage to classic noir in any way? Um, it is, yes. But you're right. I, I play with um, a lot of the tropes. And one of the main ways I play with the tropes is that um, I take all the traditional male roles and I make them women. Mm. So you have a serial killer and let's just call her a serial killer. You're going to find out in the book whether it's true or not. But a believed serial killer who is a woman and the person interviewing her instead of a tough detective or a cop is a woman. And so I kind of like there's a there's a lot of scenes where it's just those two head to head doing an interview and they both want something out of the other one. And they're both trying to one up the other one. And there's a, a real cat and mouse game going on. And that's a very common scene between two men that you have a criminal or a killer and a cop or a criminal and a, you know, and a journalist or someone's trying to get the truth out of the other person. And you have them going head to head. And there's this interview. It's like, you know, the silence of the lambs did it. And you've got all, you know, Mindhunter did it. And you've got all these amazing, amazing things to watch. And I, what if you have two women in that scene? So for, and, and it isn't just a simple gender flip, like, oh, they're not men, they're women. Like everything about it changes. The power dynamic changes. Um, what they're both want changes, what they're trying to do changes. And I even have like, Shay is going to visit this accused murderer alone in her house. And she's asking herself, am I like, should I be scared to do this? Is this a bad idea? Like, am I in danger? Because when you're going to see a woman alone in a house, it's never the first thing you think of. I, I might get killed. I mean, that's not the first thing you think. So she, even she's wondering, like, am I supposed to be afraid of dying, of getting murdered? I don't even know. And then she goes to this woman's house and Beth says to her, well, I checked you out. I checked out your background before I invited you over because I don't just invite any stranger into my house. So even this accused murderer is going, I, am I in danger? Like I have to make sure I'm not in danger. So there's a whole dynamic that I got to explore that was so much fun. And it just is with the traditional trope of it. Everything about it is flipped. And I got to explore every aspect of that. Um, so that's, that's for me, a lot of fun to write. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I felt a little bit wrong to use the term plot right at the start, because there are those layers, there are those things happening and those things you're kind of excavating and interrogating. Um, right. and this thing about the female serial killer, like, mm -hmm. I, I really love that. And in, in reality, female serial killers are, you know, they're vastly outnumbered by men, but that also right. seems to be the case in fiction two now i'm surprised because it's such a good hook just to gender flip you know the killer but why do you think we don't get more female killers yeah that's a really good question and i as i say i always go back to writing the book i want to read like i want to i want to read more books about female serial killers and you can get into just exploring then you know if if a, if you're if a woman is a serial killer what are her motivations you know like we we if you read a lot of true crime, you like there's these male serial killers and it's like they're, they, you know, they get something sexual out of it or that where they've got these various, you know, things that they've studied about them, but like kind of none of those rules apply. If it's a woman, like, do you, is it what is a woman murdering people for, because she gets something sexual out of it? I mean, we don't even know. Right. So mm. there's a bunch of weird things that completely change if you're, if your killer is a woman and, um, you know, and the assumption that she's maybe a little less dangerous. Well, is that a true assumption or not? So um, it, it's um, it's definitely just I really enjoyed exploring it. And I, I just I picked a I made up my my case. Obviously, my entire case is complete fiction. So I just got to set my own rules and make the case whatever I needed it to be in order to explore this as far as I wanted to go without being tied to any type of a real case. But were you inspired by any particular cases? Well, the original idea uh, was inspired by the Zodiac Killer, which is, mm -hmm. you don't know what that is. He was a man who, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s in the San Francisco area, uh, killed random people and sent notes to the, to the newspapers with ciphers in them and just murdered random people. And he was never caught. No one ever found out who he was. Um, he's probably dead now. Um, they 
cops had various suspects no one was ever arrested and he was never found so it's an eternal mystery at this point and so i was reading about that that's one of the really big cases if you read true crime like there's david fincher made a zodiac movie and like there's a huge it's a huge case and so i was reading about that and i just it just crossed my mind like what if you had a zodiac type killer but your suspect was a woman like who is this woman you know who why might she be doing this what what is she where is she coming from it changes how it's investigated it changes how it's written about in the press it's changed how it's written about decades later it changes how it's tried in court i mean the whole thing changes so it, the original germ of it came from the zodiac case but there's nothing in my case that is actually taken from the zodiac case it's completely different this episode is supported by novelic the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers not an algorithm Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared book club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. I got a real Lizzie Borden vibe from the mysterious murder of, of Beth's father. You find out that, her, her, you know, something's happened to her, her dad in the past. And um, right. and for those who don't know, Lizzie Borden is one of the most famous, almost folkloric now, isn't it? The, um, the yeah. story of a, a young American woman in the 1890s who supposedly murdered her father and other members of the family. Um Right. Am I wide of the mark there? Was did that play in it anyway? I Lizzie Borden was one of the first when I first started reading about true crime is one of the first cases that drew me in because it is it is one of those things she was not technically a serial killer because she didn't go around over a period of time murdering people. She just kind of I mean if if she actually did it, which whatever you can read you can read any number of books that I argue either way, mm-hmm. but she. You know, if she did it, she got up one day and, and c- killed her father and her stepmother um, with an axe in a kind of a spree. So she wasn't technically a serial killer, but, you know, she, this, you know, genteel young woman to kill someone in this horrible way and then just say, well, I didn't do it. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty chilling. And so, yeah, it's definitely one of the most fascinating cases. And it's one of the few cases that comes up when you talk about female murderers yeah i just i remember reading the book i can't remember what it was but it, the book said that the thing about the lizzie borden case was you could read it and be absolutely sure you know it, it's impossible to believe she didn't commit those crimes because of the evidence that's right but it is simultaneously right. impossible to believe she did commit them because of the evidence right and and then there's parts right. in your book where uh, a policeman says to beth i i can't believe that you're innocent, but at the same time, I can't believe you're guilty. Yeah. The police have a hard time with Beth because, and the, he even says to her, he says, you're not anything we can categorize. You're not a wife. You're not a mother. You're not a prostitute. You don't have a gambling problem. You're not a, you know, you're not like whatever, like we need to slot you somewhere as a murder suspect. And you're none of these things, you know, and you're not a, a jilted lover or, you know, a, a crazy drug on drugs, like, or a crazy party or like, you're just not, any of these slots we have for women, any type of suspect, but especially for women, you don't fit into any of them. We, we don't know anything. Like we just don't, we just don't have a read on you and we can't figure out. And that's why no one can figure out whether she did it or not, because she doesn't fit any type of a preset type, you know, Oh, well, she was a drug addict and she, you know, went was off her head one night and killed people. Well, that's not what, what it was. So, you know, what is she? So that was, that was fun to write as well. Mm. Like she, she plays into, she she plays a lot into people's expectations of her, especially men's ex- expectations, but women's as well. And she defies them all. And so that's why no one can figure out whether she did it or not. Well, she's a fascinating character because she mm-hmm. she kind of exposes the the hypocrisy around right. well, all kinds of things, from journalism to police work to just public opinion. Because I mentioned earlier that, that you know, in, in updating the noir template, there are lots of sultry women who are, right. you know, their sexuality is, is quite emphatic. And, and that's one of the key themes of your story, that this unfair judgment of women 
because Beth is continually judged in terms of her sexuality, her power, her richness, her her supposed coldness. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned a few times you're a fan of true crime, you know a lot about this stuff. Is, is that something that you see a lot in the narratives around female crime, that, that kind of weird misogyny? Yes, definitely. And there's always, and this happens with men as well, but there, there's always a judgment um you know well she didn't she didn't cry or she didn't cry enough or she cried too much again one one of the things said about lizzie borden at the time that you know she didn't cry because they doped her so then when she didn't cry they were like well she must be guilty right you know or she cried too much and that just seemed like it was fake or Mm. so there's a lot of that like what what you know this person especially women is how this person is supposed to act um which isn't you know and and so she she Beth is like you know there, there's one part where she's just walking out of the police station and a, someone a journalist happens to take a photo of her and just the angle of that photo makes her face look very cold and you know maybe it's just the photo you know like maybe it's just <laughs> you know like she just she didn't know the picture was being taken and she was you know walking and so but but that photo gets shown over and over again for decades and everyone who looks at it goes oh that's the face of a murderer because she looks so cold in that photo so um yeah that definitely played into a lot of like i played around with a lot of those types of a lot of those types of expectations and you know that that's just what happens when anyone is kind of suspected of a crime or accused of a crime and everyone gets to go why they don't look like they would have done it Mm. or they that that person looks guilty think back to like the madeline mccann disappearance where everyone was like scrutinizing her mother's reaction for like like you say did she cry enough not you know not cry enough cry too much it's like it's such a, an insane way to judge a situation when something so out of right. out of the ordinary has happened to a person to then judge them on their normal emotional reaction. It's um it's a really strange yeah, way and to the try sexuality and sexuality thing too. There's the sexuality thing too. Like Beth Beth is a very sexy young woman, but at the same time, you know, she's like the, the, the cops dig into her life and she's not like sleeping around. She's not actually like sleeping with anyone that they can find. So again, she's defying everything. Like she's this, she's really hot, but at the same time she's, she, they can't, it's not like she's going through men like water. Like they can't find anyone she's actually sleeping with. So they, they just cannot pin her down. Mm. Um, and so I like to play with those, the expectation, Oh, well, she's really sexy. Well, there must be all these boyfriends and ex-boyfriends that could go interview. Well, if there aren't, well, now what, you know, like now who is, you know, she's just an individual person. She's not a type. Mm. And so they couldn't figure out what to do with an individual person. There's a quote that you kind of referenced before, and I've got the benefit of the book in front of me. I've just been looking it up as we talk and the the quote about what is she, you know, there's a a, a male detective called Joshua Black says that she is quote like an unknown species of bird she wasn't a wife or a mother or a daughter or even a true wild child she wasn't anything which means she could be anything and there's that notion of the truly dangerous woman who doesn't fit into the social structure of the day Um, and beth herself says the cops took her seriously when they thought she might blow their brains out (laughs) and i suppose in this book it almost felt like the right of of a woman to be dangerous lethal even evil in a way is a kind of offbeat type of feminism yeah that that's the way i write things is that you know my books are very feminist in the fact that women can be absolute women can be psychopaths you know we can we can be violent horrible psychopaths just like men can you know it's the same so um yeah it's it's I really like the idea in this book of like what would make a woman be actually frightening to be around mm. um, and, and not being able to slot her into a category and, 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 and what follows up beyond that is not being able to control her makes her frightening. And I make it, I also make it very, very clear that Beth has the luxury to be like this because she has a lot of money. So she's not a poor woman that they've, that they've roped into, you know, a murder conviction there, you know, like she has a lot of money so she can afford to just say, all of you can just bug off and 
I don't need any of you and get get lost. None, nobody, nothing scares me. I can deal with anything. I can hire lawyers. I have my house. I have a bunch of money, and everyone can just get lost. So she and she had makes no she makes no apology for that. She's like, I'm rich. I do what I want, and if I want everyone to get lost, I just tell everyone to get lost. So I also make it. There's also a class thing there where she is unapologetically a very rich woman, and it's not the same type of treatment a poor woman would get. Yeah, true. Um, and then you see the flip side in Shay in the present day, who is mm-hmm. largely powerless because, um, mm-hmm. well, because of things that have happened in her past, which we won't go into because uh, they're mm-hmm. to be discovered. Um, and and I wonder whether you were going for a kind of, I don't know, structural irony in that you've got a woman in a time of mass sexism who is kind of forging mm-hmm. her own way. And then decades mm-hmm. later, at a time of supposed progressive freedom, you've got a woman who is doing the opposite. Was that an intentional juxtaposition you were going for? Um, yes, for sure, for sure. Um, when you're doing the, the double timeline, you're always comparing and contrasting your two timelines. So you've got, you know, oh, because we always like to say things are better now than they were in the 70s. Well, you know, you can say that about a lot of things, but there are some things that are the same. And so you kind of, you get to delve into that when you do those two timelines, because um, yeah, Shay is, she's really stuck in her life and she kind of knows it, but she's not really interested in, in breaking out. And when she gets this, you know, opportunity and she talks to Beth and in a way, you know, Beth is an antagonist, but also Beth is the catalyst for Shay to, find the way to break out of the life that that she was stuck in and and come up with something else and and, and in the end she becomes a successful um right true crime aficionado and much right. like the amateur detective in in sundown motel i suppose right. and and i've read that you love true crime and true crime podcasts and i've seen you mention a lot um is it my favorite murder yeah what what's the appeal of true crime stuff to you i'm always i'm intrigued by just how popular that stuff is in the last decade yeah it's very popular and it's very popular with women um and my theory on that and this is just my theory is that um true crime is a way for people but specifically for women to talk about things that have happened in their life or things they've witnessed or things that scared them that maybe didn't happen or could have happened. And it's a way for, it's a way for them to talk about it without actually talking about their own story. You know, if you talk about what happened to somebody else, it's a way to sort of process something that happened to you without having to share what happened to you. And it's not just about specifically violence that happens, like, which is also a case, but like, every woman has a story of like, I end up, how did I end up, you know, at this party all by myself in the middle of the night with a bunch of people I don't know. And if, if, if I'd had worse luck, if something had gone wrong, it could have ended horribly, but I had like a narrow, you know, like it ended up okay. But why, why did I make those dumb decisions for my own safety? And like, I, this could have gone horribly wrong. Or I met someone and I, you know, I, 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 I got a bad feeling and so I stayed away from that person, but I have the feeling that if I if I had made a different choice, something would have gone horribly wrong. So we all have these kinds of stories of close calls we've had in our life or our friends or things like that. And and so true crime is a way for us to process that stuff. And it's a way to process a lot of the danger that women feel all the time um, and without having to talk about ourselves all the time. And that's one of my theories about it, um, why people like it so much. And there's also the other, the other aspect of true crime is that there's just, there are just so many cases and so many stories where we will never know the answer. Like you will not know the answer. And part of the human impulse is to be like, I gotta know, like what, who was the Zodiac killer? I don't, like did Lizzie Borden do it or didn't she? Like I want a definitive answer. I want to know. So people there's always that impulse to like read about it. Cause you're like, well, did she do it or didn't she do it? Like what's <laughs> what drives us a little bit nuts sometimes to think about that. We, that we don't know the answer and we will never know the answer. And so that's, that's another one of the impulses that kind of takes people into it. So who, who are your recommendations for true crime podcasts for my listeners to listen to? 
Well, my favorite murder is excellent. It's it's, but it is a it is a true crime comedy podcast. So mm-hmm. there, a lot of people find that type of tone a turnoff. But if you like it, you like it, and if you don't, you don't. There's tons, you know. There's tons of other ones. For a more serious one, there's a podcast out of Australia called Case File, um, which is absolutely astoundingly good astoundingly good um they've got hundreds of episodes everyone is absolutely well researched um it it is a very serious detailed podcast about each case goes into very serious detail about about without you know joking around or chit-chatting or any of that stuff um so it is kind of like it's kind of like the the flip side of my favorite murder my favorite murder is very you know is very light and very flip but um case file is very serious it is very in-depth um and uh, it is amazing, amazing. That'd be one of my top recommendations. That's cool. Okay, I mean, I, I'm a fan of the comedy ones because i I think right. I think I need a little bit of sugar to to offset the salt sometimes. Because when you're reading about, yeah, you know, and there's you know, there's kind of a there's kind of a you know, there that my favorite murder isn't the only true crime comedy podcast. There's actually like a dozen or a couple dozen of them, and they're popular for a reason because people need like people need that they can't get too heavy and too dark for all the time i think as long as the mockery is reserved for the murderer as opposed to the victim once you start yes. punching down it becomes problematic but i mean as a right. just as an aside i don't know if you ever heard it or not but i'm going to do my bit for a, a british podcast have you ever listened to all killer no filler i have not can't recommend it enough to my listeners too and it's it's killer and filler spelled double l a if you know what i mean right and it's basically two very very crass female manchester comedians mm-hmm. basically doing what they do what it's the same setup as my favorite murder but with a very right. very brutal british sense of humor behind it and i, I can't recommend it enough right. um yeah do you have any any ambitions in that direction yourself i could so see the simone st james cold cases podcast <laughs> uh you know i uh, i would love to i would love to make podcasts i really would <laughs> It's from where I sit. From where I sit, it sounds easier than writing books, but it's probably not <laughs> because it's, I, I've seen like podcasters. It's just a. I mean, you guys spend so like it's so much time. It's, it's a massively time consuming thing to do, um, and to to build a podcast up and all that, you know, to to get it going anywhere is a, a gigantic amount of time. Um, so it's probably not as easy as everyone thinks it is just like writing books is not as easy as everyone thinks it is. Um, but I do, I, I, I love listening to podcasts. Um, I love them very much and, um, I'm so happy that podcasting came along because, um, it's just added a a huge layer to my life to just be able to dial up a podcast and, and just go with it. Indeed. I mean, don't let anyone lie to you. Writing books is a lot harder than doing podcasts. Take it from me. <laughs> there's, there's a reason that I've got 82 episodes of this podcast and yet haven't finished a novel. Do you know what I mean? There's that. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Take it from me. Your job is harder. Um, but yeah, no, but I, I, but I appreciate the recognition. Um, going back to books to finish, I always end by asking my guests to recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why. Can you uh, throw us a bone? Um, well, recently I read a book, uh, which was called A Flicker in the Dark by Stacey Willingham. And she's a debut author. It came out, the book just came out in January. And I think it hit the New York Times bestseller list, which is a huge deal for a debut author. Um, certainly not, did not happen to me. So, um, but so it did really well. It's called The Flicker in the Dark. And it's about, um, it's about a, I don't want to, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but there's just, it's a serial killer thriller. Let's put it that way. Um, really well done. And um, I read it in like two days. So I would say that, that, that would be one of my top recommendations of something I've recently read. That's not one I've heard of. So I'll check it out and put it in the show notes. Um, and my last question, Simone, what mm-hmm. truly scares you? Um, I'm scared of a lot of things. I am genuinely scared of like being home alone in the dark with weird noises happening. I mean that I, I write about those things because I figure if they scare me, they probably scare other people. <laughs> so um, I'm scared of that. Um, when I, I live in an apartment now, but when I used to live in a house, I was scared of my basement. <laughs> I 
I was scared. I was scared of a lot of things. Um, my biggest nightmare, though, honestly, my biggest nightmare, and this sounds crazy, is sharks. I'm absolutely like beyond terrified of sharks. I've never encountered a shark. That's because I have no intention of going into an ocean where a shark may be. I have no, there's, you could not pay me enough money to go into an ocean where there any type of shark might happen. I have nightmares about sharks. I can't tell you why, but I do. You say that like it's a crazy thing. Like it seems to me <laughs> a wholly reasonable proposition to be frightened. Of I don't live by the ocean. I don't go in the ocean. There's no way I would encounter a shark. I still don't Just trust the them. idea of sharks is terrifying. And you know what? I, I, I actually, I, I, I actually donate regularly to a shark conservation charity because your own I fault, actually then. am against, yeah, <laughs> I actually am against killing sharks. I'm not an anti-shark person. I am a pro-shark person. I think they should be in the ocean and we should be out of the ocean and we should leave them alone because they terrify me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I once snorkeled with, with sharks, with blackfin sharks, yeah. and I was on, on my honeymoon. Um, and no matter what anyone told me about how these sharks wouldn't hurt me and they don't eat right. people or bite people, it's impossible to right. be in the ocean with something like that and, and not. Yeah, want to learn to fly very quickly. Um, so yeah. yeah, I'm with you. But then again, if you're paying to keep them alive, only get yourself to blame. You know what I mean? That's all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Look, we just need to. We just as you as a race, we just need to stay out of the ocean. That's my only. That's my only request. We do. Everybody, stay out. <laughs> We're not supposed to be there. <laughs> We're not. Well, Simone, um, thanks for the chat. It's been great. I hope everyone reads the book. Um, as I say, it's exactly the kind of book you need if you want to just be taken by the hand and led through quite a spooky adventure. Um, but all I can say is thank you so much for talking scared. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. such a joy to read a well-plotted book. That may sound like I'm decrying the other things I've read recently. Not at all. I think this year may have had the highest hit rate so far on the on the horror front. And the diversity of approach has been great. But a well-plotted page-turner is a rare joy. That feeling that the book is out primarily to entertain you. Not to educate you or challenge you or change your mind. No polemics, just story. Just giving you a good time. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that The Book of Cold Cases is the best book I've read this year, and it's certainly not taking many chances with its approach, but I enjoyed reading it immensely. And if that sounds like damning with faint praise, it's not. As I always say, fun, joy, enjoyment. They're really important. Fans of Jennifer McMahon or CJ Tudor will lap this one up, and I need to go back and read The Sundown Motel now, because... Because that one escaped me, and I don't really know how. It was massive. Oh, and just by talking to Simone, I realised, kind of retrospectively, that there is a lot more substance to the book of cold cases than I first thought. In particular, the complexity of gender flipping the noir. That's really interesting, because it isn't just a case of swapping men and women. She's right, the entire dynamic changes. That's something for Hollywood to think about next time they go for a crass money grab, I think. Oh, and lastly, I want more female serial killers. They're scary. The fact that they aren't driven by sex or rage, it makes them truly frightening, unpredictable characters. If you've got any recommendations for female serial killers, let me know. I am talking books here, by the way. I'm not up for visiting your mad cousin in prison. Though, if you do have a mad serial killing cousin in prison, tell them to get in touch. That would be a hell of a Patreon interview. <laughs> Speaking of Patreon, might as well do it here, you can subscribe, support the show, and get bonus content by following the link in the show notes. Alternatively, you can go straight to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. The latest edition on there is a highly inspirational chat with Tyler Jones, all about success in self-publishing. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at talkscaredpod, or email directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Drop me a line. There's no themed question this week, although feel free to talk about female serial killers, but just say hi. It's, it's good to talk. Can you tell I've gone for an intentionally chipper tone this week? <laughs> it's been a drag recently, the world. 
and I've heard my own woes creeping into this show. And as much as podcasting is great free therapy, you don't come here to listen to the ramblings of an angst-ridden man in his spur room, do you? I mean, if you do, great, I can do hours of that material. And actually, I guessed on a show just last night called Who's There, which is a great podcast run by Alison Broder, in which she speaks to horror fans about why they love the genre. And, and she got me on to talk, and I think she was a bit taken aback by just how much neurosis I've got. Everything I said was like, oh, I don't like that because it's scary. I don't like this because it's scary. I had to remind her, actually, I actually am a fan of this stuff, but so much of it bothers me. So if you do want the ramblings of an angst-ridden man, go check out Who's There podcast, and yeah, you can hear me on there soon. But no, here, at least, I've gone for cheer. Because when it's all going to hell, you may as well laugh. At the very least... I can guarantee we're having a better day than Vladimir Putin, sitting alone at his big phallic-shaped table, longing for the days he could ride around bare-chested on a horse. <laughs> Next week is huge. It's a three-way, and sorry, there's no other way to put that. It's a three-way with John F.D. Taff, Livia Llewellyn, and irregular co-host Josh Malaman. We get deep into their new standard setting anthology, Dark Stars, and it basically devolves into a big high school reunion, and I'm not sure I serve that much use as a host. Definitely check that episode out, though, because, well, it's a blast, and Dark Stars really does promise to encapsulate everything that's going on and making horror great at the moment. Until then, smile for the camera, throw eggs at the paparazzi, and don't believe everything you read online. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.